0: hello and welcome to the sex within marriage podcast my name is jd and i blog over at uncoveringintimacy.com about married sexuality from a christian perspective and today i'm answering a whole bunch of questions uh that readers have sent in on our anonymous have a question page so we'll jump into those in just a second First, I wanted to take a minute to tell you about a couple things that are going on on the blog. The first is we have a brand new survey up for those who love our surveys. Don't miss out. We're just shy of a thousand responses, which is incredible because it's only been up for a few days. Uh, you know, I remember when we just started out, uh, I was thrilled to get like a hundred people total after I think a few months of trying to have this survey out. So to get uh, a thousand or yeah, almost a thousand in under a week is incredible. Like we had 500 in the first 24 hours. So that's very cool. Uh, been a lot of great comments. It's nice to hear all the encouragement from people uh, in the extra feedback and yeah, participate in our survey. Everything's anonymous. Nothing is shared except in aggregate when I do all the analysis of the data and it just helps us answer some questions because one of the. I don't want to say downsides, but one of the difficulties in being a Christian who's only had sex with one person and trying to answer questions about sexuality, uh, it can be a little bit different, difficult because we don't have a wide range of experiences. Basically, all we get is from people communicating and talking and sharing, which, as we all know, doesn't happen a whole lot in Christianity. We don't talk about this stuff. So this is a way that you can share and help, and in this way, you can help other couples. With their questions. Another thing I've been working on that I think I've got all the bugs out and I've wanted to try out is I've finally got a toll free number that you can call in and leave a voice message with a question. So if you don't want to send an email or put it on our page, or if you prefer to talk, if that's easier for you, you can just call this toll free number. I don't track where the calls come from or anything, but I can grab the recording of the file. And I was thinking I could just play people's questions right in the podcast. And then you could hear other people's voices besides my own, which I thought would be kind of neat. So if you want to try this out, the phone number is one 719 uh, I'll say it again, one 719 228 So if you want to call that, uh, it's toll free in Canada and the US. I'm honestly not sure about the rest of the world. If you're in the US, you can actually also text that number and I'll get the text messages. Uh, it doesn't work in Canada. I don't know why. Uh it doesn't make any sense to me since texting is pretty universal. But for whatever reason, it works in the US, not in Canada. Sorry to my fellow Canadians. Uh, it also doesn't work in Australia and the UK and anywhere else that you might be listening to this. Hopefully one day it will, but for now it doesn't. So if you're interested, if you have a question, if you'd love to love to have your question on the podcast, then you can call that number 1-833-719-0228 or you can text me and that's another way to get your question asked. And lastly, I've been making some changes to how our support network kind of works. Uh, for those who don't know, we have a group of people who help to support uh, this podcast and our blog and our mailing list and everything, because all this stuff costs money, believe it or not. And uh, some of them give a dollar a month and some of them give $50 a month. And until recently, the only way I had to let people join this community of supporters was to use patreon but patreon has upset a fair number of people in the last little while so i changed our pages around a bit if you go to uncovering slash donate uh, you can now use patreon if you like uh, and if you prefer not to you can use paypal directly you can also go to that page, uh, uncoveringintimacy.com slash donate to figure out, you know, what do you get for donating? Because we have a whole forum online that's private and only available to people who contribute to our ministry. And uh, it's an amazing group of people. I-, I very much enjoy interacting with all of them. And uh, they get to see all these questions come in. So they tend to be able to discuss them for the month prior to me actually managing to get a post out about them. So if you're interested in that, uh, yeah, head over to the site, uh, uncoveringintimacy.com slash donate. Uh, we actually have a few goals set up as well. I said, well, if we hit certain targets, then I will commit to doing certain things. So the next one, actually, it's our first goal. I said, if we got all of our expenses for the blog covered and the podcast and everything else, then I would commit to doing at least a monthly podcast episode, which I've been trying to do this year. Uh this is it's only second month so hopefully i'll get this out in the next three days it's the 27th today but yeah we are five dollars short of a 350 dollar per month goal and for those of you who didn't know yeah it costs about 350 dollars a month to keep this blog up and running and those are just the the ongoing monthly expenses there are some other incidentals that tend to pop up that aren't in that figure but that's okay So if you're interested in contributing, if you want to join this community of people, then yeah, check out the page and I'd love to get you to know you better in our private forum. All right. I think that's all the announcements I had. So on to the questions. So I've tried to group these in some kind of grouping. Uh, there's a whole bunch of miscellaneous ones that didn't really fit into anything at all. Uh, But I thought I'd start with the kind of non-sexual questions, because yes, believe it or not, there are questions about marriage that don't involve sex. And actually, I'm starting to get more and more single people visiting my blog as well, uh, which makes some people nervous. Uh, But I got this one question in last month uh, that reads, I'm a single 19-year-old, and I'm committed to saving sex for marriage. I find your post very informative, and I'm interested in learning more about sex from a Christian perspective. My question is, would it be wrong to seek this kind of information when marriage isn't in the picture yet? Is it good that I'm wanting to gain a better perspective on sex, or should I be waiting to do that a little further down the road? So this is a question that's coming up more and more, and the truth is I have quite a few single readers. Uh, There are over 60 of them on my mailing list, Who at least there are 60 who admit to being single. I suspect there are more who think that if they actually let me know, I'd unsubscribe them or filter what they can see somehow. But I don't do that. Um, I don't filter what people see and what they don't, for the most part. Uh, sometimes it will. Like, I'm not going to bother telling you about some sale that's on on a product that you've already bought. So I filter in those ways. But generally, I'm not filtering, like, what content you should or should not see. Now, I think that certain posts on my blog, like how to do specific sexual activities or how to keep things in the bedroom interesting and some other topics probably aren't wise for single people to read. Uh, I can't stop you, but I'm hoping you kind of stop yourself. That said, I do have a lot of posts on communication and trust in and, and other things that are applicable to many other relationships as well, especially when you're choosing a spouse and I think it's important that you get to see what healthy sexual relationship looks like, you know not literally but figuratively because most of us don't get a whole lot from our parents on that front, and we certainly don't get it from our churches either as well uh my, as my children grow up, uh, my eldest is now 12, uh, they're going to start thinking about dating, marriage, and sex, and all that stuff in the years to come. So I'm probably going to start addressing more and more of those types of questions in addition to continuing uh, to answer those questions uh, about marriage itself. And we've already had some questions in the past asking about uh, premarital sex or if oral sex is okay before marriage. You know, we need some place to answer those questions, and every time I try to start a new website to tackle another topic, it quickly dies. I don't seem to have the ability to manage multiple blogs, at least not at this time. So yeah, I think it's fine for single people to read this blog. I just ask that you be careful about what topics you choose to read and kind of self-regulate. All right, our next question is, they say, it's not really sexual, sex-related. That's okay. We do handle questions that aren't sex-related. Anyways, he said, it's not really sex-related, but more relationship-related. Why does my wife think I'm psychic and read her mind? So, first off, yes, thank you. We do answer non-sex questions. Uh, as to your your question, it's a failing of us humans that we tend to think everyone thinks like we do. Some hold this belief more strongly than others. When someone thinks that you can't have a thought they don't have, it's called bad theory of mind. Uh, it's part of our mind, not, not our brain. So our mind is an abstraction of the physical thing, the brain. And it starts to grow around the age three or four. Before that point, uh, any child generally thinks that you know everything that they know and vice versa. That's why they'll cover their eyes and say, you can't see me because they can't see you. Ergo, you must not be able to see them. Uh, I think it's also why they have no concept of theft. You know, if they want something, they take it and they expect the person to want them to have it because, well, they want it. So of course, the other person wants them to have it. Anyways, we slowly grow more and more into this theory of mind as we grow up, but some exercise it more than others. You know, personally, I tried to very hard to exercise mine because I naturally have very bad theory of mind. Um, training for coaching and practice of coaching over the years has helped to strengthen mine so much so that I'm at the point that I tend to help others with theirs. So it can grow. Uh, it's, a, it's a muscle that can be exercised. So, But generally, when spouses expect you to be a mind raider, it's because they think your mind works the same as theirs. They likely no longer believe that you know everything that they know and see everything that they see, like a three- or four-year-old, but they may still believe that you have the same kind of reality tunnel that you have. A reality tunnel is... I'll try to explain that. Uh, you see, none of us experience reality unfiltered. We take some 400... Billion bits of information per second through all of our senses. But we can only consciously handle seven plus or minus two, so it's between five and nine bits of information at a time. Our brain decides what information is useful to us to know at any given time and doesn't bother us for the rest. On top of that, uh, yeah, they have this concept called reality tunnels, which are constructed by experiences and belief systems. For example, a Christian may look up at the sky and see a beautiful example of God's creation and an atheist might look up at the sky and see a beautiful example of the Big Bang Theory. What you take as proof of your beliefs, others will take as proof of their opposing beliefs. This happens a lot of Christianity when we have two opposing doctrinal stances using the same verse to prove their point. They each filter the objective reality, what the verse says verbatim, through the different reality tunnels to achieve differing perspectives. So they're putting on their own biases and thoughts and learnings and linking it to different verses and coming up with different answers for what does this mean? Uh, if you haven't been around for a while or haven't read the comment section of some of my blog posts you see this happens quite a bit someone will bring up a verse and I'll say that's the verse I was going to bring up except from my point of view and they're trying to argue against me. So then on top of that we have something called the critical faculty which further filters what we accept into our brain. Uh generally generally it solidifies whatever we already believe and rejects whatever we don't believe. I was just talking to one of my coaching clients about this the other day. So you take all these together and it becomes a problem whenever anyone believes that someone else has the same reality tunnel and critical faculties into them. This tends to happen in marriages because our lives are so intertwined that of course we think that they see things the way that we do. I mean we live in the same houses We generally go to the same churches, we generally have the same core beliefs, so of course they must think the way that we do. As well, we as humans like to be right, and one way that we validate that we are right is that when people agree with us. So when our spouse sees things differently, or doesn't see what we do, or doesn't think what we think, then we tend to get angry because, well, getting angry is easier than potentially being wrong. And they're supposed to supposed to think like us, aren't they? I mean, that's why we love them, right? Because they're exactly like us and prove that we're right, right? So it isn't that your wife thinks that you're a mind reader. It's just that she thinks you think exactly like her, or at least that you should. Uh, but what's the chance that your reality tunnel is going to line up exactly with hers and that your brain will filter those same 400 billion bits of information down to the same seven plus or minus two pieces? Not very likely. Now, the other thing that comes into play, and this is the one that's going to get me into trouble, is that generally when women are afraid of something in a relationship, it's generally related to security. Men tend to be afraid that they won't be able to provide something, money, emotional connection, adequate sex, children, whatever. But women tend to be afraid that they won't get something. You know, let's say money, emotional connection, fidelity, children, etc. Not always, but generally. One of these things that make women feel secure is being known. Uh, unfortunately, some people take this a little too far and think that if you really knew them, then you know what they were thinking all the time. But that's a superpower I think only God has. You know, whether it's rational or not, it could be that when you show that you don't know what she's thinking, there's an insecurity that pops up and makes her feel that either the relationship is in trouble, or that you don't love her, or that you aren't interested in what she thinks. And those are devastating thoughts to many women. So that's the why. Uh, so what can you do about it? You know, there are two verses that uh, come to mind. The first is in Proverbs 26, verse 4. You know, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Now, I'm not saying your wife is a fool, but she may be doing something foolish here. And the way to answer that is not to argue with her about it. This debating over why you didn't see what she saw or thought what she thought is not a rational argument, and debating it will only think- make things worse. It'll just suck you into a vortex of irrationality, and you will lose, because there are no rules. Um, she'll just make them up as she goes along, uh, and invariably, her rules will be in her favor. Now, the next verse comes right after it, and it's, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Uh, this is Proverbs 26, verse 5. Uh, so, what we get from this is that you you even though it's irrational and you shouldn't argue with her about it, that you should not leave it unchallenged. When someone brings something up that's clearly irrational, you can't just let it slide or else they just use it as proof to build further irrational statements on later on. So you can't leave it unchallenged. So I would just simply state, I cannot read your mind, but if you'd like to tell me what you think I should know, I'd love to learn what you think. Now, she may retaliate with, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you, but that's just baiting you, you back into an irrational argument, which you can't win. So you can just simply say, well, that's up to you. I can't do anything about that. Because you can't control her. All you can do is control yourself. So you should be aware that uh, these responses are likely to irritate her. Ultimately, what's happening is you're being rational in the face of irrationality, and that makes the irrationality even more obvious, which is uncomfortable when you're being the irrational one. Yeah, I think I said that right. So best case scenario, she realizes she's being irrational, uh, but it's a rare person, male or female, who is humble enough to recognize that when they're wrong, in the middle of being wrong. Second best scenario is she gets mad, stomps off, and later realizes and apologies, apologizes. That's more common. So that's my best guess as to why she thinks you're a mind reader or should be, and what you can do about it. Hopefully that helps. So our next question is about Uh, do-it-yourself arousal lube. And they wrote in, have you ever heard of someone combining coconut oil with menthol or food-grade peppermint oil to make homemade female-stimulating lubricant? I'd like to try this, but if someone else has gone ahead of me and had a bad experience, I'd rather learn this lesson vicariously. As a burn on a rather sensitive area sounds pretty unpleasant. So I'm not sure I've heard of people specifically making arousal creams themselves. (sighs) I I haven't tried it myself, but we did get some comments from our supporters group that might be helpful. So the first is that peppermint oil is a hot oil, which means it can burn. Uh, Be careful. Uh, It can burn on regular skin. Um, Genitals are very sensitive skin, so be very careful. Uh, Second is anytime you're using oils on your person, you should test all these oils on the inside of your wrist first to test for sensitivities. Apparently, that's a pretty sensitive spot. And, um, if you have a bad reaction to it, it's much better to have it on your wrist than, uh, somewhere more sensitive. So start there. Uh, number three is you should always dilute oils. If you're planning to use them internally or on sensitive skin. Um, there's a website called plant therapy. They have some dilution, dilution charts and suggestions. Uh, I put a link to it in the blog post. You can just find it on our website, but they don't specifically, uh, address genitals and What dilutions you should use for that. So I would probably go for the most dilute that they have on their chart and uh, still, yeah, test on the inside of your wrist and be very careful. Um, By the way, these are oils. So if you have to wash it off, um, you have to use soap. Um, Water won't work because, you know, water and oil don't mix. Now, after I had finished recording the entire podcast and uh, writing my show notes, I sent this to the person who edits all my posts before they go out, and she wrote this in the comments. Regardless of what the essential oil is, it should never be casually used on the genitals or mucous membranes for that matter. There are times when working with a qualified aromatherapist, a diluted essential oil can be used to address a specific condition at a specific place for a specific amount of time. Peppermint, as well as other essential oils, can actually cause irreversible damage if used incorrectly. Even lavender can cause damage, and that's thought to be one of the most benign essential oils out there. If they want to find a qualified aromatherapist, I always suggest Naha, so that's spelled N-A-H-A, and it stands for the National Association for Holistic Aromatherapy. Many of them work remotely, some only work locally, Uh, and then she put a link which I'll include in the show notes. So, There you go. Some more information. Be very careful. Uh, You might want to work with a qualified aromatherapist because they know more than I do. So our next question is, my husband and I have sex quite frequently, almost every evening after our four kids are in bed and sometimes twice a day. Some days I like to get myself revved up beforehand to make sure I'm in the mood when the time comes. I never orgasm by myself only when I'm with him and usually only tease myself for a minute or two. It's definitely not taking away from our sex life. If anything, it's enhancing it. My husband knows that I do this, and often if he walks in while I'm taking a bath or whatever, he'll take over for me. Sometimes this actually leads to sex when we otherwise wouldn't have had it. We have a great time, and it's basically foreplay on and off all day some days. Is this wrong? So we've talked about masturbation a lot on this blog. Uh, My views aren't popular, I know, but people keep asking, so I keep answering. To be honest, I don't have an answer for this one. In my mind, there's a big difference between teasing yourself and expecting your spouse to watch in and catch you, and playing with yourself in order to stoke the fires for later. Others would probably bucket those two things together. So, as with all things, you have to follow your convictions. My rules for myself are simple. Is this a shared experience with my spouse and only my spouse? Yes or no. And... I think you should figure out what your rules are, are, why they're your rules, and then act in accordance with your convictions. All right, our next question is about sex routines. So they write, I recently read the book Do It Better, uh, which was very interesting. In fact, I couldn't put it down. And I read it in just a few hours. In it, the authors list several of the favorite sex routines. These are very fun to read through and implement certain elements into our own routines. Wondering if you keep a list of common routines anywhere. We're curious to try more. Thanks. So i don't have a list of common routines anywhere uh personally i'm not great at routines i like things to be adaptable depending on what's working and what isn't in a particular night and that may just because i find that what often whatever works today will not work tomorrow at least with my wife uh, i don't know if anybody else has the same experience with her i suppose so if i'm following a routine and it gets interrupted or the response isn't what I expected, then that would throw me off because I'd expect uh, the progression to go from, you know, A, B, C, D. If B gets thrown off, then I don't know what to do next. That doesn't mean routines are bad. It just means it's not something I've considered making myself. However, I did notice the other week that com has added a routine section to their website, which you may want to check out. They only have one up so far, but if I know them, they'll have more up soon. So I would subscribe to their mailing list. They have one uh, and they will actually send you a position to try every week, which could also be fun. So our next question is about sex furniture. Uh, they write, what have you heard about the Liberator essay or the essay chairs or the tantric cha- sex chairs, yoga chairs, etc. in general? Are they worth the money or a waste? So I have personally heard great things about them. Uh, I haven't tried them yet, though, because, frankly, we don't have room for them. We have five kids and two parents, me and my wife, in a four-bedroom house, and one of our bedrooms is my office. So, uh, our three daughters actually have the master bedroom, which leaves us with the smallest bedroom in the house. It basically fits our bed and a little, like, two-foot area around the bed, so there's no way we're fitting any kind of furniture in the room, six or otherwise. But if I did move and we had a bigger room, I would definitely be checking them out. Uh, it's a pricey investment. They're not cheap, but I hear it's well worth it. Uh, I'm afraid I don't have any personal experience to help you with, but I hear good things. Now, if you're listening and you have no idea what these things are or what they look like or anything, uh, check out the blog post. I have links to uh, both of the chairs that they mentioned in there, and you can check them out on Married Dance, which is a safe, Christian-friendly site. All right, I think I have time for one more question in this part. Uh, I have many more questions to go. Um, I think I got 30 of them in January, Uh, but I'm trying to keep this under about 30 minutes or close to 30 minutes anyways. So this last question is, I'm in my first year of seminary for a master's in counseling, and I'm taking a class on sexuality. Today's discussion led me to Google searching, and that's how I found your blog and podcast. Yay, Google. Have you had a chance to read Jay Stringer's book called Unwanted? It's amazing, and I can't recommend it enough. He's done research for 3,000-plus people about unwanted sexual behaviors, including porn and infidelity, the idea is to look at unwanted sexual behavior and find the root. I found it fascinating and really telling it about the sexual behaviors we desire. I ask because while I found reading your blog very helpful, I wonder if some of the things suggested could really be unhealthy slash holy acceptance of acting out things in our past that bothers us. For example, trying to understand how bondage or other somewhat taboo activities can be holy. I listened to the podcast that addressed golden showers and loved how you were upfront and basically said it was about humiliation and that it takes your partner's dignity away. So I believe that you have a basis for suggesting it can be, but I guess I'm just wondering thoughts on that. I'm not sure what Stringer would say personally about bondage, so I'm just putting his framework on this one particular issue, but he does address that many men desire power over women in various reasons and that those reasons are unhealthy. I see only that bondage would only encourage men to power over women in unholy ways versus inviting men to look at why they feel this need to assert power, etc. Obviously, this works with both genders, and this book talks about much more. This is a flyover example, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Sorry, so vague and a bit all over the place. I've tried to refine it, and I'm still struggling. I'll be watching the blog, and I'll comment if it's relative should you post this question. All right, well, I'm posting the question, so yay. I have not read this book yet, uh, but I will check it out. Actually, I just ordered it, so I should be able to get through it soon, I hope. I got the audiobook, so uh, I have more time to r- listen than I do to read these days. As for the question about bondage, I have an entire post on my views on bondage. Uh, I'll link to it um, yeah, in the show notes for this. Uh, if you like, you can check it out. Hopefully that will clear up some of it. However, I wanted to point out that in a lot, or maybe most cases I see, it's the woman wanting to be tied up, not the man wanting to tie up the woman. Usually the men feel uncomfortable having that much power. In all honesty, I see that as more of the problem than the woman wanting to be tied. I think a lot of men these days are uncomfortable with power and responsibility, and that's not a healthy thing. So I hope that helps, and thank you for the book recommendation. I'll check it out. I think that's all the time I have for questions today. Uh, I still am planning to answer the other couple dozen. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our latest survey. You can check out our new supporter page. uh, And you can also try out our new phone number. Uh, Even if you just want to send me a message and say, hey, that'd be great because I'm still kind of testing things out. Links to everything will be in the show notes. Uh, I think I figured out how to do them finally with links and everything. So... Okay, uh, that's it for now. Hope to have another part two out soon. See ya.